Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agdarab. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. In honor of March and the celebration of women's history, we have chosen to highlight the life of Teresa of Avila through the scholarship and spiritual guidance of Sister Kathleen Flood. An Illinois native, Kathleen R. Flood, OP, presently resides in Wisconsin. She became a member of the Cincinnati Dominican Congregation, the Order of Preachers, thus OP, in 1981 and served as a campus minister in Illinois and Wisconsin. She came to Nashville in 1988, serving for many years as university Catholic chaplain at Vanderbilt, as well as providing a ministry of spiritual direction, leading retreats, preaching, and teaching. Sister Kathleen is a graduate of the Graduate Theological Foundation and holds the Doctor of Ministry degree in Christian Spirituality. She holds multiple degrees and currently serves as an adjunct faculty member for the Doctor of Ministry program at Drew University in New Jersey. Sister Kathleen is a longtime faculty for the Academy for Spiritual Formation, which is where I first encountered her teachings and singing at Academy 29. Listen on, dear one, and as you listen, breathe deeply and expand gently. Perhaps you will hear an invitation not to labor but to invite and to notice where god might be watering the gardens of our spiritual life 28th of march 1515 is the birth of teresa of avila her uh from what i can read her parents were very pious catholics and i'm sure that their faith in some ways inspired their daughter to take up a life of prayer. Even as a young girl, she seemed to show signs of a deeply religious nature. She'd often retreat into silence, which was unusual, of course, for a young girl. She would enjoy giving alms to the poor. Now, she was very, very close to her mother, who kind of provided a warm counterbalance to the strictness of her father. So I think some of that probably prayer, that deep pious sense came from her father, but then there was kind of a a counterbalance, a warmth and a playfulness that came from her mother. In her early teens, however, Teresa's mother died. And she left this young Teresa absolutely distraught. She tells uh, later on what a devastating situation this was for her and that she desperately needed a mother. So she decided that she would turn to Mother Mary for comfort. She writes in her autobiography, 
I threw myself down in despair before an image of the mother of God. With many, many, many tears, I implored her to become my mother now. Uttered with the, with the simplicity of my childhood, I really believe my prayer was heard. From that hour on, I never prayed to the mother of God in vain. So here again, we have now the loss of a significant person in early, early years of formation. <laughs> You're closing out the mountain. Oh, okay. Now you think I don't like looking at you. <laughs> Good. Please don't. <laughs> yes, because I'm in the hills of Wisconsin. In the mounds of Wisconsin. Well, Teresa begins to feel some kind of call. And there's a large monastery in Avila of Carmelites. Now, who in heaven's name are they? Well, they started out on Mount Carmel, therefore Carmelites. They were a group of men that wanted to uh, pray for the Crusades. Now, there were two reasons why they were on Mount Carmel. One was just simply because of location. But the other is they believed in the tradition that Elijah would appear before the Messiah and that Elijah would appear on Mount Carmel. So they decided to take up a life of prayer and silence and wait for the Messiah because certainly what was happening in the Crusades was the beginning of the end of the world. But as the Holy Lands are lost to the Crusades, the Carmelites are forced to move from their um, contemplative space there. They kind of lived individually and in community. They had their own little kind of huts but then they would come together for times of prayer and I think also for their uh, meals. So they had to leave Mount Carmel and they went into the cities and one of the cities they went into was Avila. And out of that came this big mo um, monastery for women that was also founded called the Monastery of the Incarnation. So in her um, later teen years, she considers entering the Monastery of the Incarnation. Now, there were a number of wealthy sisters that lived in this monastery. And they had 
their own servants that mended their habits and their socks and all of those good things. And Teresa began to think that this was not how life in the monastery should be. Because then there were sisters who were poorer, and they didn't have anybody to cook for them or take care of their clothing or all of those things. So she began to realize that something had to change. So she begins a reform of the monastery at Avila. Obviously, it's not met with a lot of excitement. But she manages to pull off that reform. But she's not content now with just having the reform of the Monastery of the Incarnation. She feels called to ask the rest of the Carmelites to be also to come into reform. Now, what happened to the Carmelites when they had to leave Mount Carmel was they had to learn now to fend for themselves. They used to have monies and things from knights that passed through that would help them sustain their life. But now they had to take care of themselves. So what do they do? Well, they had to join in the lifestyle of the Dominicans and the Franciscans and become mendicants, and begin to beg for what they needed. So that was Teresa's idea, too, of the women, that they needed to depend on the community for their, um, f- for the, their necessities and to be prayerful about what they needed rather than to depend on wealthy parents and benefactors. One of the things, the small little things that Teresa decided was they shouldn't have so many shoes. <laughs> that a nice pair of sandals or even bare feet would be just fine. So what was the order of Carmelites became the order of Discalced Carmelites, OCD. Discalced meaning without shoes. So when you see OCD after somebody's name and you wonder, what is that? It's the order of Carmel Discalced. In other words, they live the strict life. Now, because of her time, there's something unique now happening, and that's the fact that Teresa can read and she can write. And also that certain parts of the scriptures are now available to people. Now, a little known fact about Teresa, although they're talking more about it now, is the fact that her grandfather was Jewish. Now, why that's important is in, in her upbringing at that time, these two kind of unusual people come to light, Ferdinand and Isabella. They take over the government of Spain, and Spain has discovered the new world, therefore 
revolution or however we want to say. And because of that, they're becoming wealthy as a nation. And Ferdinand and Isabella want to protect this wealth so that Spain will just be the glorious nation she's been. But in order to do that, they decide that anyone who is not Catholic should not live in Spain. That they might under they they might just undermine what it is Ferdinand and Isabella are trying to do. Now Spain at that time was so beautifully rich in culture. The Moors were there, so the Muslim faith. The Moors had built all the wonderful waterways and fountains and things to bring water into the fields. I mean, it's just uh, phenomenal. The Jewish people were there. They had been there for a long time. And then, of course, quote-unquote, the church. So Ferdinand and Isabella said, if you do not convert to Catholicism, you're no longer welcome in Spain. So a number of Moors and Jews became uh, conversatios or converted. And we know that that was the the truth about uh, Teresa's grandfather. But what I also suspect, and if you do a really close reading of her work, she has more... uh, scripture from the Hebrew scriptures than she does from the Christian scriptures. And I have a feeling that probably her grandfather told her a lot. And that maybe in some ways she also was very aware of Jewish customs, but could never talk about it because he would have been either assassinated or driven out of the country. But she has this wonderful love for the scriptures. Well, she realizes that she's called to do reform in more than the monastery of the incarnation. And she starts out to reform all of the Carmel monasteries in that area. She was never very healthy. And she was probably a workaholic. And she had to get around in stagecoaches and on horses. They say she probably had early arthritis. So in other words, this job was quite painful physically as well as spiritually for her. She meets a a young Carmelite friar by the name of John. He will be called John of the Cross. And she influences him to help reform the men Carmelites too. So together they become quite a team. 
Now, Teresa begins early on to write about the spiritual life to her sisters. Now, another little thread runs through this. Because Ferdinand and Isabella wanted the church, the institutional church, to help with their little plot for Spain. And they came up with this little thing called the Inquisition, which in Spain actually did have some uh, relationship with the Dominicans, for which we are quite sad. But we were only part of the Spanish Inquisition and not the later Inquisition that kind of took over the whole church. But the idea was to examine people to make sure that they were orthodox. It would be like taking every delegate to a convention or, and asking them questions about what is it that you believe. And if you don't believe this way, then we'll help you believe. And I need say no more. The interesting thing is people began to be a little curious about Teresa's writings. So every time she would write something for her sisters about prayer or whatever it was she was writing about, it would, get, it would get taken to the Inquisition, to the authorities, and they would often burn it or get rid of it. So she had to write it all over again, and every, every time she wrote it, she changed it a little. But she wrote about prayer, and she wrote about the spiritual life and ways that we could grow in that life. So I thought I might tell you about a couple of those insights rather than some more facts about her life, which probably aren't that important. So I brought two things that I like. One is she compares prayer to water. She calls it the four waters. Now, remember, the Moors built these beautiful fountains and beautiful waterways. And most of that was to water the fields and the gardens in the area. So she notices this, and she begins to say, well, maybe if I could use this as a description for prayer, the sisters could understand what it is I'm talking about. So she says, um, the first stage of prayer would be like carrying water in a bucket to the garden. That to learn to pray really requires a lot of effort. 
And it would be like watering a garden with a bucket and carrying a bucket back and forth multiple times to get a little water on the garden. And even though we really want to pray, we make it so much work. You know, we want the right place, the right time, the right book, the right whatever that might be. So she says we're just always carrying around buckets and we never get anywhere. We get a little bit of resource, but not enough to take care of the garden. Then she says, to think now of the moors, there's a water wheel. Now for her, that water wheel would have been a big wheel with a number of buckets on it that would turn and go down into the source of water and then it would pour it into a little trench and it would run to the garden. So she says, as we grow in our prayer life, we don't work so hard. So we're like the water wheel. We can put a little reserve in that little stream that runs to the garden. We're beginning to let God do some of the work, she says. And then... For her third sense, she says, think of a small stream. Because now our prayer life is advancing enough that Christ steps in to help us water the garden. But what that requires is that we have to unite ourselves in the life of Jesus. And we can start what she calls the prayer of recollection. So we might imagine ourselves like Mary looking at the child Jesus, or we might imagine ourselves like the woman at the well, or we might imagine ourselves in a variety of different scriptural references, and that as we can begin to place ourselves in that picture, our prayer life deepens. She says if when we can put ourselves in multiple gospel scenes like that, we can keep ourselves from getting stuck and not progressing in prayer. She doesn't use this phrase, but in some ways I wonder if she's not talking a little bit about Lexio Divina and using scripture as a way to focus ourselves. And then she says, there's a fourth way, and that's rain. And that's what God sends. So at some point, we stop working in our prayer, 
and we let God take over. And for me, even though, again, she doesn't use that word, I think that's what she's trying to do to describe contemplation. That that's when God waters the garden and we stop working. Were you familiar with Teresa of Avila? Perhaps you encountered her work before and are discovering her again? I'm so grateful to those who set the path, who light the way, who build the scaffold for us to begin a life of prayer. Isn't her imagery of the four waters enlightening? How often have I experienced the first stage of water in a bucket, getting sloshed about, spilling my attention everywhere, and not feeling like I'm doing it quote-unquote right. (laughs) I love the reminder to not work so hard at this life of prayer. I love the reminder that I am not God and I don't need to be. I don't need to control everything. At this stage of my life where There are three children in our home, from teenagers to a toddler, a full-time job, a spouse, aging parents. I am always tempted to believe I'm not doing prayer right. But then, thanks be to God for the saints who remind me. Remind me that our prayer life deepens not because we worked so hard at it and therefore earn it, but because we are freed up to discover and recognize the grace and abundant love of God already at work. In this season, I experience God at work in the delight my toddler feels, in the tough life lessons our teenagers experience, and in the sweet moments of sunshine in an otherwise very dreary Pacific Northwest winter. If there is a pro-woman message I might share with sisters of all backgrounds, it's that we can stop working and let the divine take over, especially in this area of our prayer life. Our spiritual gardens are yearning for nourishment, and the divine is quick to provide not only a trickle, but rain showers. Mm. That's a good word. So I invite you to share this podcast with others. May it be a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions you've long held, and a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Sister Kathleen, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.